0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 8, 2 Kings chapter 6. Last week's lesson in Second Kings 5 revolved around the Gentile Syrian army commander, Naaman, who gave us a surprising look at the most foundational principles of the gospel. See, I, I say surprising because most believers, even seekers, expect to find such principles not in the Old Testament, but in the New. Yet in reality they're looking in the wrong place. The gospel of deliverance from sin for both Jews and Gentiles is actually constructed in the Hebrew Bible not in the Greek New Testament. The importance of this narrative involving Naaman therefore must not be underestimated and so I want to begin by spending a a few minutes to review it and to give it a context. See, the purpose of the New Testament is not to develop the gospel, but rather to tell us who the deliverer is that the Old Testament gospel predicted. And now that he has come, and he's gone, what does that mean? Not only for his Jewish followers, but also for his Gentile proselytes that soon will arise by the thousands and eventually millions In fact, what does this coming mean for the world in general? Thus the New Testament can rightly be classified as primarily inspired commentary. Hebrews would call it Midrash. Commentary on the Old Testament in light of the advent of the Messiah. And what we found in the person of Naaman was a Gentile who for some inexplicable reason wore the sign of his inner spiritual uncleanness outwardly on his skin. This skin condition is called serat. Now what makes this matter so mysterious is that it was a condition that seems to have affected only Hebrews because it was its cause was spiritual, not so much physical. So it was not because of some handed down genetic defect or inherited divine curse that serat manifest itself only in Hebrews, but rather because the God of Israel would directly afflict a Hebrew individual with one of a variety of skin diseases in consequence of them refusing to be obedient to him and thus acquiring a ritually unclean spirit within. Yet the only people that he expected such obedience and faithfulness from, and thus the only people that were even susceptible to Zerat were his chosen people, Israel. So what was this Gentile from Syria doing with it? And frankly... This is the part of the story that's the crux. And it's the point that's usually missed entirely. A young Hebrew female house slave for Naaman recognized his symptoms. And so she told his wife that since this was a disease inflicted by the only by the Israelite God, then the solution lay exclusively in the hands of an Israelite representative of God. And thus Naaman ventured to Israel to seek out the famous prophet Elisha to see if he could perhaps deliver Naaman from what to Naaman's thinking was merely an unfortunate but terrible skin disease he had somehow contracted. A disease no different than measles or chicken pox, except there seemed to be no end to it. Elisha told him the solution was to immerse himself into the Jordan River where he would bathe and be cleansed. And after a burst of anger and skepticism that if such a simple thing as bathing in a river could cure him, that he could have done that and in fact, did immerse regularly in Syria's beautiful rivers instead of traveling to enemy territory in Israel. But after his servants calmed him down, he reluctantly followed Elisha's instructions to immerse seven times in the Jordan. And immediately the Sarat left him. A key principle here is that the Bible does not say he was cured it doesn't say he was healed. It says he was cleansed. And the meaning is that in faith and in obedience to the God of Israel, his unclean inner spirit was made clean. And thus the reason for his sarat was gone. Now, Naaman was not only an intelligent man, He was a practical man. If there was even a remote chance that this prophet of Israel could heal his affliction, he was going to avail himself of it. And not only was he a practical man, but he was a blessed man because for some mysterious reason, Jehovah had prepared what must have been his willing heart to accept the God of Israel as his only God. Something that no man had detected, maybe Naaman himself didn't entirely recognize it. Something had been occurring in Naaman. He must have been seeking the truth. It's just that he didn't know that the truth he sought resided not in human philosophies or wooden idols, but rather in the glory of Israel's God. Neman had been worshiping other gods, Syria's gods. He no doubt believed in them, mostly, even if there was some skepticism. This was what all Gentiles did. He was no different, but the Lord, for His own good reasons, chose this particular Gentile, one with an open heart, to afflict him with Zerat and use this great discomfort to drive him in anguish towards the God of Israel so he could be delivered. In another sense, the Zerat was meant to reveal how a Gentile's inner spirit was automatically unclean before the Lord, something that the Lord had shown the Levite Moses centuries earlier. And if that Gentile wanted a clean inner spirit, which at some subconscious level Naaman must have, then he would necessarily have to bathe and be cleansed in the living waters of Israel. There was no other route. There was no other solution. See, there couldn't be a clearer picture of how a Gentile is delivered into salvation and it is this a Gentile must accept Israel's God he must be immersed in the living waters of Israel to be cleansed of his or her unclean spirit but even more that Gentile must give up his own false gods and worship only Jehovah. And we see that Naaman did exactly that. In chapter 5, verse 15, Naaman confesses this to Elisha. Then with his whole retinue he returned to the man of God, went and stood before him and said, Well, I've learned that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. Even more. When Naaman explained to Elisha that now that he had pledged his full allegiance to the God of Israel, nonetheless, he had no choice but to return to Syria and remain within the Gentile Syrian culture. But Elisha wished him shalom. That is, Elisha put no requirement upon him to have a circumcision and thus become a Hebrew. See, this delivered Gentile did not become an Israelite. He did not leave his Gentile nation or abandon his Gentileness and become a citizen of Israel. Yet, he was just as delivered as if he had become a national Israelite. See, it's important for us to grasp that in the Bible era, Old and New Testaments, that a nation, its culture, its traditions, and its gods were of one cloth. Worshipping a certain national god was part and parcel of that same nation's societal fabric. One didn't belong to a nation and then make a, a decision as to their own personal religion of choice, like we see in the world today, especially in the West. See, it was automatic it was unquestioned, it never came to mind. So when Naaman was shown the truth and he chose to worship Israel's God and reject his own nation's gods, he indeed went back to continue living in Syria because his family was there and he felt his duty lay there. But in his mind, in his heart, he was in some Mm. difficult to define way now also joined to Israel because he was joined to Israel's God. So yet another element of the Gospel especially as it pertains to Gentiles is revealed and it is that one must adopt the Hebrew God and be given a clean Hebrew spirit by means of being immersed into Israel's living water to be delivered from our uncleanness before the Lord. But one does not have to become a physical or a national Hebrew in order for that to happen. Naaman's inner spirit was the result of his faith, his trust in the God of Israel. Nothing more. There was no ritual performed over him, even though he thought there had to be. No holy man presided, or caused, presided over him or caused his deliverance. No money would be paid wouldn't it be accepted because his deliverance was a free gift from God and no amount of earthly wealth could ever be enough to purchase such a, such a deliverance anyway. And this principle remains in force Even since the advent of Christ, we must accept our Lord in faith. We can't work our way, we can't pay our way to obtain our own deliverance. There's no human intermediary that's needed or is even capable to usher us into the kingdom. Gentile believers remain as Gentiles, yet have been joined with, or as Paul says, grafted into, Israel. Not physically not nationally, but rather spiritually. Not with a circumcised foreskin, but with a circumcised heart. Precisely as it was with Naaman. So this concept of Gentiles being grafted in, declaring allegiance to the God of Israel, becoming part of Israel on a spiritual level by means of faith alone was by no means A New Testament Christian innovation that began upon Yeshua's death and resurrection. We find it here in 2 Kings over 800 years before Christ was born. Let's move on to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, page 406, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The guild prophet said to Elisha, As you can see, the place where we are living in order to be with you is too small for us. Please allow us to go to the Jordan. Each of us will collect a log there and will build a place there for us to live. And he answered, Go ahead. But one of them said, Please, won't you come with your servants? And he answered, All right, I will. So he went with them. And when they arrived at the Yardan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a tree trunk, the head of his axe fell into the water. Oh, no, he cried, My master, it was a borrowed one. And the man of God asked, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. Then Elisha cut a stick, threw it in there, and the iron axe head floated to the surface. Lift it out, he said. So he put out his hand and he took it. Now the king of Aram went to war against Israel and in consulting his servants he said, I'll set up an ambush camp in such and such a place. But the man of God set this message to the king of Israel be careful not to go past such and such a place because Aram will attack attack there so the king of Israel sent men to the place the man of God had told him and warned him about and he took special precautions there this happened more than once or twice and it greatly upset the king of Aram and he called his servants and he said to them "All right, tell me which one of you is betraying us to the king of Israel and one of his servants replied, It's not that, my lord king. Rather, Elisha, the prophet who's in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak privately in your own bedroom. He said, Go and see where the, where he is so I can send and bring him here. They told him he's in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots and a large army there, and they came by night, they surrounded the city. And the servant of the man of God got up early in the morning, and on going outside he saw an army with horses and chariots surrounding the city. And a servant said to him, Oh, my master, this is terrible. What are we going to do? And he answered, Don't be afraid. Those who are with us outnumber those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, Adonai, I ask you to open his eyes so that he can see. And then Adonai opened the young man's eyes and he saw and there before him all around Elisha the mountain was covered with horses and fiery chariots. And when they came down to him, Elisha prayed to Adonai, Please, strike these people blind. And he struck them blind as Elisha had asked. Next Elisha told them, You've lost your way. This isn't even the right city. Follow me, I'll take you to the man you're looking for. So he led them to Shomron, Samaria. And on their arrival in Shomron, Elisha said, Adonai open the eyes of these men so they can see. And Adonai opened their eyes and they saw. And there they were in the middle of Samaria. And when the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, my father, should I attack them? Should I attack them? And he answered, don't attack them. You wouldn't even attack prisoners you had captured with your own sword and bow, would you? So give them food to eat, water to drink. Let them return to their master. So he provided well for them, and after they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they returned to their master. And after that, no more raiding parties entered the land of Israel from Aram. But sometime afterwards, Ben-Hadad king of Aram gathered all of his army. He went up and laid siege to Shomron. And at the time there was a severe famine in Shomron and they maintained their siege until a donkey's head sold for 80 pieces of silver and a half pint of dove's dung for five pieces of silver. And as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, Help, my lord king, help. And he said, If Adonai isn't helping you, how do you expect me to help you? There isn't any grain, there isn't any wine. And then the king asked her, What's troubling you? And she answered, Well, this woman said to me, Give me your son so that we can eat him today. We'll eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And the next day I said to her, Give your son so that we can eat him, but she's hidden her son. And when the king heard what the woman said, he tore his clothes. And at the time he was passing by on the wall, and when the people looked, they saw him there with sackcloth against his skin. And then he said, May God do terrible things to me, and worse ones too, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his body by day's end. Elisha was sitting in his house, and the leaders were sitting there with him, and the king sent a messenger ahead. But before he arrived, Elisha said to the leaders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to remove my head? Look, when the messenger comes, close the door and keep it shut against him. You can hear his master's footsteps following right behind him. And while he was still speaking, the messenger arrived with this message from the king. Here, this evil is from Adonai. Why should I wait for Adonai any longer? We have here a series of stories about Elisha that blends important matters of national survival with smaller matters of everyday life and concerns. And the first issue involves a simple axe head. Now before we even discuss this specific case of God working through Elisha, I'd like to make some observations. Sometimes in life, we wonder just how trivial of an issue that has suddenly come up that we ought to take before the Lord. Which ones maybe we ought to just handle and and move on. On the one hand... We're told this in the book of Philippians 4, 4, 4, 4 4-7. Rejoice in union with the Lord always. I say again, rejoice. Let everyone see how reasonable and gentle you are. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. On the contrary, make your request known to God by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving. Then God's shalom passing all understanding will keep your hearts and minds safe in union with the Messiah Yeshua. Yet on the other hand, just how small and mundane of a matter are we supposed to trouble the Lord with? See, I think what the story of the lost axe head tells us is that God is not like a harried boss who is sick to death of his employees laying every minute problem in his lap to decide or to fix. Rather, the Lord demonstrates here in 2 Kings 6 that nothing is too small for him to show care for, mercy for, provision for, to those who trust him. And in the axe head story, we see that those who cling closely to the man of God, Elisha, in faith... They experience deliverance, not just from big, dangerous things, but from the small but distressing things as well. So the context of the first story is that members of the local prophet guild, where Elisha is staying, have run out of room to have their communal meetings. And despite the political pressures of a wicked Israelite king and his government, the peer pressure brought on by the apostate religious establishment of Israel, the prophet guilds have never grown and thrived more than they have now. Therefore a larger building is needed and the guild approaches their leader Elisha for permission to get to work and to build the needed facility. As they go down to the Jordan River to get lumber a prophet began chopping down a tree when the axe he was using just came apart and the heavy iron head separated from its handle fell into the water and the young prophet was greatly distressed because an iron axe was an expensive tool. And depending on how the various translators interpreted the Hebrew word sha'al, we see that the passage implies that the axe was either borrowed or it was begged. And the difference between the two terms is that borrowed means the expensive tool didn't belong to the prophet and so he felt terrible losing a lent item that belonged to someone else. Or, if it was begged... It means that someone had responded to the prophet's need for an axe and had donated it to him as a valuable gift. But now it's lost. Either way, we have a very upset prophet. And the work to gather lumber for their new building is now in jeopardy, at least of being slowed down. So he goes to Elisha with this problem, and Elisha fashioned a replacement handle, threw it in the water, and the heavy iron axe head miraculously floated to the surface whereupon it was retrieved by the relieved young prophet. Now in addition to showing the Lord's concern for such mundane matters in our lives, there is a solid biblical principle here that is perhaps the underlying point of the story. One might ask, why didn't Elisha just reuse that existing axe handle to throw into the water after the axe hit. Why did he fashion an entirely new one? And the answer is that when God is about to do a miraculous new work, he typically uses something new to do it. And what can be more miraculous than a dense iron axe head acting against nature by suddenly floating on the surface of the water? Earlier in Second Kings, we saw Elisha decontaminate some undrinkable water in the city of Jericho by throwing salt from a new flask into the city's water supply. And of course, most Christians are familiar with this famous saying by Yeshua about some wineskins from Mark 2. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and both the wine and the skins will be ruined. Rather, new wine is for new wineskins. Jesus' is saying is merely another illustration for the principle that when God is going to do something new, He uses new things. And in verse 8 now, we move from the trivial to the critical. From a problem for an individual to a problem for a nation. The situation is that Aram, Syria, and Israel are in this chronic state of hostility against one another. There was no major warfare happening, but instead each side would send raiding parties into the other's territory to harass and to steal and to kidnap. Now this is something so common in Middle Eastern mentality that is still present to our very day. But this time something happened to cause the king of Aram to take a daring step of escalation to the highest level. He formulated a plan to kidnap and kill Yehoram king of Israel and we are privy to the meeting Ben-Hadad had with his royal court where the assassination plot was hatched. And the idea was that Ben-Hadad's men would go to a place where they knew Jehoram frequented and then lay in wait for him. And because one of the prophetic gifts that Jehovah had endowed Elisha with was second sight, Elisha foreknew of the plan. And so he quickly warned King Jehoram to avoid passing by that place. Well, after a few frustrating near misses, the king of Syria figured that some traitor in his ranks had to be informing Jehoram of the kidnap escapade and he openly accuses his confidants of that. But one of his men told him that it wasn't any one of them divulging Hadad's plan to the enemy, rather it was that darn prophet Elisha who could supernaturally discern such things and he was warning the king of Israel, ruining everything. But even more, that meant that Elisha probably knew everything that Ben-Hadad was planning and thinking That's the meaning of saying, even in his bedroom. And this, of course, couldn't be allowed to stand. So Ben-Hadad's attention turned from assassinating King Yeram to capturing and presumably killing Elisha. Well, some of Ben-Hadad's scouts reported that Elisha was currently staying in Dothan. This is about 12 miles north of the city of Samaria. And so... The Syrian king sends troops to capture him. The king sent a large military uh, unit. They arrived at night when hopefully the prescient Elisha would be sleeping and so he wouldn't discern their plan. But Elisha turned the tables on the Syrians. Now so far ben Haddad's strategy seemed to be working because when daylight broke... One of Elisha's assistants woke up before his master did. He went outside and he was shocked to see the Syrian army surrounding his city. Panic-stricken, he ran to Elisha and told him what he had seen, but Elisha's response is cool and calm because he knows something that nobody else does. His He has forces arrayed that far outnumber, have far more power than any army from Aram. And so he says to his servant, fear not. Fear not. The Hebrew term is al-tirah. And whenever we see it, we know that the subject is deliverance. That is, there is about to be a divine deliverance from danger from trouble. Just as God opened Elisha's eyes so that he could witness the spiritual act of Eliyahu Elijah being taken heavenward in a whirlwind and he could see the presence of those fiery chariots and horses, now Elisha asked Jehovah if he would open the eyes of his terrified attendant. His petition was granted. And behold covering the hillsides around Dothan were innumerable fiery chariots and horses. God's heavenly hosts are there to protect God's people even though they cannot be seen and usually not even sensed. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 34. They looked to him and grew radiant. Their faces will never blush for shame. The poor man cried. Adonai heard, and he saved him from all of his troubles. The angel of Adonai, who encamps around those who fear him, delivers him. Elisha wanted his frightened assistant, and, and us, of course, to know that Jehovah protects the righteous. He wanted the lad's faith and ours. To be strengthened with this knowledge. Well, the army of Aram who had no idea that such a supernatural host was there watching and waiting just for the Lord's word to mobilize. Well, the army from Aram attacked. And rather than ask the Lord to use those heavenly hosts to destroy the enemy soldiers, Elisha asked the Lord to simply close the eyes of these troops to make them blind. Now the Hebrew word used in this instance for blindness is sanvarim. It doesn't mean for the troops to lose their eyesight. Rather the idea is that while they could still physically see, they could not perceive they became confused, unable to function. It is in the same sense that we might say that someone's blind to the truth or to danger that just lay right in front of them. They just can't see it. We don't mean that they're physically blind. And Elisha told the Syrian army leaders that if they were looking for the man of God, that this wasn't the right place, but he'd take them there and he led them to Israel's capital city, of Samaria, where the king of Israel had his palace. Now, what happened here has bothered some Christian scholars and Bible teachers because Elisha out and out deceived and lied to these people. And everybody knows lying is a sin. But there is no biblical invective against deceiving one's enemy in battle. And in fact, we'll find that in a very real sense, Elisha did them a great kindness. Every one of these soldiers went home alive. When if the battle had proceeded, many would have died. And after Elisha leads the soldiers to Samaria, he prays that their eyes would again be opened, that is, and they can now perceive normally again. And when Yeram saw Elisha leading this enemy army right to him like they were a bunch of lost sheep, he first, his first thought was to kill them. But at least he had the presence of mind and had gained enough respect to inquire of Elisha if he had led them there just for that purpose. And Elisha told him no. Essentially, the ever-sharp-tongued prophet wondered why the king thought he had any right to kill a bunch of enemy soldiers whom he'd not captured. The king's only purpose would have been to make political points by claiming a great victory over which he had no part. And Yeram heeded Elisha's instructions, and instead of killing these Syrian soldiers, he prepared them a banquet. He cared for them and then he released them to go home and harmed. Now because this was an honor-shame-based society, no doubt the king of Aram had to show proper honor to his enemy Jehoram in return for Jehoram's kindness to his army. Thus verse 23 explains that the Aramaeans stopped attacking Israel for a while. This in no way means that they had found peace with Israel. It just means that an appropriate amount of time passed so that Israel's kindness was properly repaid such that the king of Aram wouldn't be shamed when he again began his hostilities. And quickly in verse 24, our chapter moves to the third story about Elisha. And this verse begins with the words, sometime afterwards, meaning that some undetermined amount of time had passed since the Aramean soldiers had been freed to go home after their run-in with Elisha. Ben-Hadad sent his army back to Samaria and they laid siege to the walled city. And what follows is a vivid description of what happens when a city comes under siege. Now let me remind you that in the era of walled cities, siege warfare was the usual method of conquering that city. The high walls and the thick gates usually work quite well in keeping the attacking army at bay. So the purpose of siege warfare was essentially to surround the city and then, of course, the inhabitants became trapped inside of it and then to cut them off from food and perhaps even water sources naturally most cities had some amount of food stored and wherever possible the city's water source lay inside those high defensive walls so it became a waiting game sieges typically lasted for anywhere from weeks to many months eventually food supplies inside the city ran out starvation set in and disease caused by the dead and the dying ran rampant. The last resort was for the city's famished and ill residents to just give up, open the gates, plead for mercy as the enemy marched in. So not surprisingly, verse 25 explains that there was a great famine and food became so scarce that the head of a donkey sold for an exorbitant amount of money as did a small quantity of something called dove's dung now the point of mentioning the donkey head is that first off a donkey is an unclean animal it's not permitted for food and second the most inedible part of a donkey if you were going to eat it was the head now the dove's dung is not well understood. There are two lines of thought on it. First is that, it, is that dried animal dung was a common source of fuel for cooking fires when, when wood wasn't available. And to sell a very small amount of dove's dung for a high price showed the extreme lack of cooking fuel, even if there was little to eat. But the other line of thought is that the dove's dung has nothing to do with doves or dung, but rather it's a colloquial name for seed husks that come from a certain kind of carob. It was food for the very poor. It had no nutritional value. It was merely added to what little little food there was to make it stretch and so to kind of fill up your belly. That, to my way of thinking, is probably more likely the meaning. But then we get this report of the shocking extent of the hunger of those trapped inside and the degrading depths that people will sometimes go to to get sustenance to stay alive. As King Yeoram is walking along the top of the city walls, theoretically attending to the city's defense, a woman shouts out to him for help and he responds that if jehovah won't deliver her, how can he? Is he supposed to manufacture food out of thin air? It was with a combination of sarcasm and defeat that he had replied to this desperate woman. But what the woman was really asking the king for was a kind of awful, irrational justice. It seems that she had made an agreement with another woman that in order to survive they would both kill and cook one of their children and then share the feast of human flesh. First she was to kill her own son and then when more food was needed the other woman would do the same. The woman who was talking to the king had been the first to kill and cook her child. But now more food was needed. And the other woman refused to follow through with her part of the bargain. The conversation so unnerved Jerom that he tore his garments and he vowed in God's name that if he didn't behead Elisha this very day, he would submit to being the victim of cannibalism himself. Now first off, this story is neither hyperbole and it's not a myth. There are countless reports of cannibalism when cities fall under long-term sieges. The Book of Lamentations reports that when Nebuchadnezzar put Jerusalem under siege, the Jews ate their own to survive. In fact, the Lord promised Israel that this exact thing would happen if their rebellion against him went too far. We find this in Leviticus 26. And if for all this you still will not listen to me but go against me, then I will go against you furiously. I will also chastise you yet seven times more for your sins. You will eat the flesh of your own sons. You will eat the flesh of your own daughters. But what is fascinating in kind of a macabre way is that somehow the king of Israel blamed Elisha for his predicament and this horrible deprivation that the residents of Samaria were suffering. Such, he wanted him dead immediately. We'll take up the conclusion of our story next time.